Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Kwasi Kwarteng's fiscal statement, his first as Chancellor in Liz Truss's new government. Was it a budget for the rich? The headlines certainly make it sound like that. Bankers' bonuses and the 45p top rate of income tax both scrapped. Us lesser mortals will also get a penny in the pound off our basic income tax as well. These are being hailed as the biggest tax cuts for 50 years. But can the country afford them at a time when the government is also having to subsidise energy prices And bearing in mind that the NHS and social care system won't now be supplemented by the recent rise in national insurance contributions because those are being reversed. We're going to hear from Sam Bright from Byline Times, author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital, from Jeevan Sander, Head of Economics at the New Economics Foundation, and Joe Mitchell, Associate Professor of Economics at the University of the West of England. Before that, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to The Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper, which has exclusive content that you can't read online. The great thing about The Byline Times is there's no shadowy oligarch or millionaire backer telling us what to say. We can report without fear or favour because our funding comes from ordinary subscribers, people like you. So do please subscribe, if you can, to The Byline Times. Get full details about subscriptions over on our website at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Sam, let me start with you, because your book, Fortress London, deals with the whole levelling up agenda, which was a key part of the appeal, if not the reality, of Boris Johnson's government. Has that now been junked altogether? In short, if you want a word, Adrian, I'd say yes, <laughs> by the look of this statement. The economic plan here and Liz Trust and Kwasi Kwarteng have not disguised this in any way, has basically been to fuel the economy by allowing the rich to get richer. They're not particularly bothered about inequalities growing. They've obviously put together a massive package of support for people who are going to see their energy bills going up. Although lots of people will still be pushed into poverty, you know, hopefully people will just about be able to manage. But essentially, in terms of their grand economic vision, it's people in the city of London, particularly, I'd say, who will see greatest benefit from, from these tax cuts, from the bankers' bonus cap being ended. Quasi Kwarteng as well, he, he indicated that there will be a new batch of deregulation in the city coming our way later in the autumn. So this certainly is just the start of his plan to really fuel the fire in the financial sector once again, sort of harking back to the Thatcher era. So yeah, it's very much concentrated growth around London, which then in theory trickles down to the rest of the population. Infrastructure investment wasn't really talked about in this statement. Obviously, there was some indications that the government would try and speed up some infrastructure projects by deregulating or, or speeding up the planning process for these for these projects. But if there aren't any infrastructure projects in the pipeline that they really want to hammer away on, then it doesn't seem that that fast pace will benefit the, the public sector in any meaningful way. And Joe, Sam has touched on it there, trickle-down economics. Joe Biden said the other day that he'd had enough of trickle-down economics. It seems like Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng can't get enough of it. So just explain briefly what trickle-down economics is and how it might play out as a result of this budget? 
Yeah, it is ironic that uh, Joe Biden sent that tweet just as trickle-down economics, so-called trickle-down economics, seems to be given a resurgence from Liz Truss, although I don't think she was the deliberate target. The theory, and I stress very much that this is the theory of trickle-down economics in the sense that this is what people who support it will tell you, is that in order to grow the pie, to use this awful culinary metaphor, which is around everywhere, meaning in order for there to be more money to share around, what we need to do is share it more unevenly. We need to make the rich richer, but in the process of them getting richer, everybody else will also get richer. They won't get as rich as the rich, of course, but it's the best you can do. You know, the people at the bottom might get an extra tenner a week, but if we don't give the people at the top an extra thousand pound a week, then the people at the bottom won't get anything. So it's a bit difficult. It's a bit sad, but look, this is the best we can do is the theory. That's what they'll tell you. And that's how they will justify the, so the, the, the idea essentially that rich people will splash the cash and we poorer people down the economic chain will benefit from that. They will hire us to mow their lawns. They'll get us to do their laundry and they will create jobs in the economy that the rest of us can then benefit from. Yeah, I mean, there are a few different justifications as to how it actually works. I mean, one version, sort of the standard version is that the entrepreneurs, the business people, the people with the ideas and the drive forward dynamism have to be unleashed. And that's where the sort of deregulation comes into it, have to be given the money to allow them to turn their ideas into practice. The sort of idea that it's Elon Musk that's making us all richer. So you've got to make sure he's got access to all the sort of resources and, and power that he needs. But yeah, as you say, there are other versions which are sort of slightly more mundane, which is that, you know, if you're lucky, Elon Musk might hire you to do his dishes or, or mow his lawn, and then you're also getting some, some money this way. There are more technical versions about if you raise taxes, actually you get less tax and this kind of, you know, all of these theories, I think are just completely disproven. And the reality is you don't even get a trickle. You get upward movement in fairly substantial amounts with these kinds of policies. You don't get growth because quite simply, in order for growth much of the time, you need people to spend. And if you're taking money away from the people who are likely to spend and give it to the people who are likely to save, as the, the wealthy are, you know, if you give somebody who's poor £100, they'll spend £100 because they need things now. If you give somebody rich £100, they'll stick it in the bank. So it doesn't generate spending. And a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, what you need for growth is spending. So I think it's it's just simply wrong, both on it'll make us grow faster and therefore give us more to share out. And some of that will eventually make its way down to the, those who deserve and, and need it. Jeevan, Liz Truss is very fond of comparing herself to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was a believer in trickle-down economics, but she was also a believer in making sure that you could balance the books. And to that extent, this doesn't feel like a Thatcherite mini-budget. It does, and it's certainly true. This was actually deeply, deeply irresponsible. You know, I think this has been the worst budget of my lifetime. I mean, I thought that in March as well, when Rishi Sunak didn't operate social security payments in line with inflation, it seems I'm destined to see each budget being the worst ever. But no, this was a truly shocking and awful way to use the government finances. You know, we're talking about borrowing here, you know, in the in the region of about £45 billion a year to go on these massive tax cuts that go to the rich and big business. We should be clear about how much is going there. Over half that corporation tax cut rise today goes to those who are earning more than a million pounds. 
for those on national insurance, you know, the national insurance income tax cuts together, we think those are the top 5% getting over eight and a half thousand from this, the average family only getting 400 pounds. So you're borrowing all this money, you're just chucking it all to the rich. It is very difficult to see a justification for that. And particularly as well, some of the comments around growth and how we get there, tax cuts is not the magic way to get to growth, okay? If you just need massive tax cuts, like Somalia would be richer than Sweden. Like that's clearly not the case. And actually at this point, first of all, get enough cash into families' pockets. They can actually afford to spend it down the shops. They're not saving it in the bank, as Joe was saying. Secondly, invest in people and places so they're more productive in the future. And finally, get Brexit done. You know, businesses aren't investing. as That investment rate has fallen since 2016 because they have no certainty. So certainly, yeah, this is an incredibly irresponsible budget that we've seen. I'm pretty shocked this is where it ended up. We knew it would be bad. This was far worse than anything else that we kind of eyed for seen yesterday in any case. And ultimately, if you are right and Liz Truss and Quasi Quieteng are wrong, these tax cuts will not be paid for by economic growth. And if they're not paid for by economic growth, they can only be paid for ultimately by higher taxes in the long run. The thing is, you can borrow to invest. There are good uses of borrowing. The question is, what is the return on that? And actually, the problem here is the return isn't very good. So because you haven't got more growth, you can't grow your way out of debt. You know, you think about what happened in the Second World War, for example. It wasn't that we had to spend kind of loads of effort to kind of pay it down. so that we grew as an economy and the debt burden became lower. So actually, I don't want to get into this. And I think part of the problem is some of the framing we've seen is about you know, isn't it awful that we're borrowing money? There are very good reasons to borrow money. Getting to net zero, a great reason to borrow money. That costs £30 billion a year, by the way, these tax cuts. Uh, almost 45 billion pounds a year so certainly look there are good uses and good reasons to do that but that's certainly not not where we are today and that's incredibly unfortunate joe you look at the corporation tax cut and there is an argument isn't there that cutting corporation tax will make britain more attractive for companies looking to invest into this country than some of our rivals. You look at the cut in stamp duty, you can argue that that will oil the wheels of the housing market. You're not being a bit too damn beat about this. I think in the short run, what I would say is there is a chance of a kind of sugar rush boom. We shouldn't write, write off completely the fact that this could look like it works for what's left of the electoral cycle. I think quite clearly what's being done is there's a target of the next general election. Liz Truss has come in with a very bad hand, actually. She's come in after 12 years of austerity, after Johnson has trashed every institution and convention going. And I think actually, I mean, I agree with Jeevan, this is an absolutely atrocious budget. it's, It's vandalism and it's naked class interest. It is worse than I thought. But it's not completely out of the question that the market stabilise, you get a short run GDP burst, it will peter out, it won't be sustained. But if the press are on side and they can all sort of say, highest GDP growth in G7, trustonomics works, you know, just based on one month's numbers, you know, basically fudge it. I think it's not likely that that scenario plays out, but I think it's also not zero and we need to be sort of watchful for the, for that not just you know write this off completely on your on your specific points the evidence that the relationship between corporation taxation and genuine investment meaning building new productive capacity generating jobs and so on is very very weak there's there's basically no evidence that higher rates of corporation tax reduce that kind of investment what they can do is attract 
The Irish model will attract headquarters and then it's kind of extracting rents from around the world, putting them through the books and okay, it's good for the Irish exchequer, but it's not a model that A, everybody can produce. It's a race to the bottom. Only one country can sort of get to the bottom on corporation tax. And, and it's just, it's not a sensible approach either for any. So that's the corporation tax point. The housing market, I mean, moving house doesn't really make us all richer, much as the Daily Mail likes to tell us it does. But I think you raise an interest, interesting point here is that the iceberg, which they're currently heading straight towards, is the housing market. They will induce higher interest rates as a result of this budget. The Bank of England will intervene. Inflation is going to be high. They're going to probably intervene to try and prop up the pound, although they won't be able to say that's what they're doing. That's going to feed through into interest rates, and that's going to feed through into mortgage rates. And I do struggle to see how the housing market at best doesn't flatten off, or I mean, I say best from the point of view of the people who want it to sort of continuously go up and think that that generates prosperity and so on. And so much of the economy is for better or for worse, mostly for worse, driven by housing price valuations and so on, that I think that is where the wheels really can come off this so-called plan. We are taking on massive borrowing in order to fund this budget, and that isn't borrowing to invest unless we get the growth from cutting taxes that Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Trust seem to believe that we will. Well, think about it slightly differently. You know, look, if you're a business, you do borrow, right? And the reason you borrow is you ask yourself, you know, is the rate of return on my borrowing greater than the cost of borrowing itself? I mean, the interest rate that I'm paying is the rate is the rate kind of that I'm borrowing at worth it or the return rather worth it. And actually here, you know, what is the investment return you're going to get? You know, you're going to have this massive tax cut that goes to the rich and goes to the bank accounts of the rich because they're going to spend less of it, basically. So even if you were to say, okay, we're going to borrow all this money and give it to somebody to get growth, you would give it to those on low incomes because they're going to spend money in the economy. More broadly, there's no kind of incentive reason. Like people have a very good reason to work hard in this country. The very good reason to work hard is we're all struggling to pay our energy bills. Almost half of us are struggling to pay those energy bills. 2.6 billion kids growing hungry. So there's no way in which I can see that this does end up being kind of a positive benefit for the United Kingdom. It is just a hugely irresponsible way to transfer kind of money from the treasury, if you like, to, to those at the top. I'd also say as a, as a side point, like I know we use the word trickle down, but trickle down suggests that it does trickle down. And that's the evidence indicates it doesn't. It just stays right there. Tax cuts to the rich, they stay with the rich. And that's in the short term. In the much longer term as well, it damages growth. Because when you're giving all that money to the rich, actually it means that those in the middle and the bottom find it far harder to make ends meet. They have to try and keep up in some way. That damages their healthcare, that damages their productivity. And if those at the bottom, those on low incomes are really struggling to pay their bills, actually as parents, it's pretty hard to sit down with the kids and do the ABCs or read to them at night. And that damages your future productivity as well. So there's lots of reasons why actually this budget by leading a huge increase in inequality will actually damage our future growth prospects. You know, that's that's the thing here. This is an anti-growth budget. It's not a pro-growth budget. And it is fairy tale economics, right? The fairy tale economics of just a massive tax cut. You know, it's, it's childish. You know, back in the Middle Ages, our tax national income must have been far, far lower than it is today, probably 10 times lower as a portion of national income. People in the Middle Ages didn't pay income taxes, didn't pay corporation taxes, and things weren't very well then. Things weren't going great. You know, life expectancy was about 30-something years old. There was no schools. 
There was no education. There were no light bulbs, for God's sake. So I'm not sure that was entirely due to the Chancellor at the Times tax policy, in fairness. (laughs) (laughs) Let me bring Sam in here, because part of the narrative, I think, Sam, and I've heard this played out in interviews I've heard in other media, and it's been touched on here, is that inequality is not a bad thing. As long as you as a worker are getting more money in your pocket at the end of the week, then it doesn't really matter to you if a banker is getting a bonus or if somebody at the top of the economic tree is having to pay less tax. It's an interesting one because I think this strays from economics into sort of moral and social policy in a way. I mean, we've heard Conservatives parrot for the past 12 years. I mean, what was the classic phrase back in the 2010 general election campaign? It was, we're all in this together. How ironic does that seem after today's statement? And I guess the idea is that if not not only, you know, as the two economists in the room are spelling out, not only does inequality actually harm growth in many ways, and particularly policies that grow inequalities by extending the wealth of those at the top, it also creates social fissures and fractures and potentially political extremism as people see that they're struggling to pay their energy bills while millionaires are getting a £55,000 tax cut, twice the average annual salary in the UK. Frankly, I think it's pretty fair to say that the Conservatives have benefited from that slow grind of political extremism over the past 12 years. We've seen the Conservatives steadily move towards the right and adopt the close of the lights of UKIP and Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, etc. And so they've, they've profited from it. But that creates a, a real social problem for the rest of us. And, you know, maybe, maybe in a couple of years' time when this doesn't work out, it might create a political problem for Liz Trust too. I mean, you just have to look at the the headlines that are coming out of this statement. I mean, we've kind of been taught that no matter what the Conservatives do, they seem to win elections in perpetuity. But I just wonder whether this is the this might be the end of the road. Away from the millionaires, I noticed that part-time workers on universal credit, essentially people who, whether for reasons of age or lifestyle choice, only work part-time and then have their earnings topped up, by benefits are going to be given extra work coaching with the underlying threat that their benefits will be cut if they don't work harder to get a full-time job or to get more hours. And it just strikes me that that's a, a policy which is at odds with the idea of having a more flexible workforce. Lots of people engage with jobs partly because they can do less than 40 hours a week, partly because those are the kind of contracts that are being offered. Companies like to offer zero hours contracts. It also acknowledges that we are short of workers in the economy, Mm. which some people would Mm. look at and say, hmm, that wasn't a problem before Brexit, was it? Well, exactly. That's the elephant in the room, isn't it? It's Brexit. If the the government was truly pro-growth, then it wouldn't be trying to wage war with the European Union over Northern Ireland. It would, you know, try to forge closer economic ties with the European Union. That's one of the more farcical aspects of the government's pro-growth approach. I think as well, I think your point about part-time workers, Adrian, I mean, I've seen a few people point out that this is actually quite a deeply sexist policy because many of the jobs 
undertaken by part-time workers are undertaken by women because they have to do care alongside those occupations, which is something that just hasn't been taken into account by this government. And again, it, it just seems to be the case that in terms of investing in the human and physical infrastructure of this country, in terms of educating people properly in the skills for the modern world, in terms of creating people who can go into key worker professions, the sort of jobs that we were clapping for during the pandemic, and making this country a high-wage, high-skill economy, which again is another cliche that's been parroted for the past 12 years, and the government doesn't have any substantial plan. It's merely trying to, as has been said already, create a sugar rush that will hopefully propel it to victory at the next general election. Joe, uh, throughout the hustings for the Conservative Party leadership, which obviously then leads us to the Prime Minister, I was shouting every time Liz Truss said she was going to row back on the national insurance contribution increase, which is what Quasi Quiteenga has now done, because the increase in national insurance contributions were specifically to enable social care to be paid for and for in the short term for the NHS to get extra funding to deal with the backlog caused by the pandemic. Now that the national insurance contribution increase has been scrapped, well, we've still got the situation where social care needs massive funding, where the NHS needs massive funding because it's in crisis. So the long-term solutions, I remember Boris Johnson saying that he was willing to make the difficult decisions for the country, which is why the national insurance contributions were going up. That difficult decision has now been reversed and and the NHS and social care are still going to need that funding in the long term. Yeah, there's a few things here. Economists call a tax of this type, which is aimed at a specific purpose, is a hypothecated tax. You know, we're going to raise this money and we're going to spend it on uh, this specific thing. A lot of us, including myself, think these are a bad idea for a number of reasons. There's no particular reason that one income stream for the government should be directed to one particular form of expenditure. I mean, all money coming in is money coming in. Costs are costs. What the government didn't do when they raised the national insurance contributions was put in place any kind of plan. They didn't announce any meaningful new spending on social care. They didn't put any kind of plan in place. So in many ways, that policy was the worst of all worlds. National insurance hikes are progressive in the sense that they people on higher incomes are hit more than people on lower incomes, but they're not a very good tax. You know, they, they sort of penalise work for, for a number of reasons. So I would have been much more in favour at that time of something like uh, capital gains tax, equalising dividend treatment with wage treatment, something which really does genuinely tax the wealthy to pay for social care and, and, and health. So for that reason, I, I thought it was a bad policy move at the time. Reversing it is a worse policy move because it's deeply regressive reversing it. It's giving lots of money to people who don't need it very much. And as you say, the problems of the NHS and social care are are left hanging. I don't think it's specific to that particular tax increase or decrease. I think we should resist the temptation to say that they ever intended to use that tax change to do any of the things they were saying that they were going to do. But that doesn't help us with your overall point, which is that the NHS is in crisis, it's badly underfunded, social care is, if anything, in an even more desperate situation, understaffed, underfunded, no kind of central scheme or plan to to straighten things out. It's a dismal state of affairs, and I, I can't think of anything positive to say. One thing I would say is that, you know, in terms of national insurance, 
kind of cut we had today actually there's also kind of there was another way forward and the other way forward would have been you cut national insurance but for those who earn less than the upper earnings limit which is about fifty thousand pounds a year so what would that mean it would mean that actually you know those who are earning less than 50 grand would get well actually everyone gains a benefit sorry on all their earnings under fifty thousand pounds everyone still gets the car but your earnings over fifty thousand pounds are still taxed and at that point the chancellor would have kept about half the money he raised so that's like quite a good move. It's about five to six billion pounds a year, at least there in the pocket, which you can use for things that are incredibly useful in this country, you know, and then at the NHS back pro that we discussed, of course, education on the other side. And so there were actually ways to kind of cut taxes for, for average families and keep them there for the rich. This government has gone in completely the other direction in a way that I don't think we were really prepared for. And I don't think that the general public really knows well, certainly kind of this is a shocking state of affairs in terms of narrative as well. And I think it is it is worth touching on that. You know, Trump was incredibly popular after his tax cuts in 2016 or 2017. They gave most of the money to the richest one percent or the very rich rather. And kind of had this growth in wages. And although kind of the rich benefited the most, those on average incomes were feeling OK and actually quite approved of Trump's handling of the economy just before COVID hit. And so there is certainly an idea as to how do you sit there and make it clear this is an incredibly irresponsible budget. And there is a more difficult and nuanced line than just saying, guess what, you've had this catastrophic fall in incomes. Uh, on the other side of it, we should also not forget, though, it is true the energy price cap is being frozen at its current rate. But it will still, you know, almost half of us are struggling to pay our energy bills right now. And there is other inflation to come down the track. So it's not like the cost of living crisis is going away. It's just we're not about to see, you know, this catastrophic wave that's going to knock out middle income families and chuck them to the wall. No, and indeed we, as taxpayers, will all end up paying for the energy price cap because a political choice, the government has said that it won't impose a windfall tax on the energy companies, unlike many of our European counterparts. Yeah, quite and a, a bizarre choice given the amount of money that they're making. And also, it should be clear, like oil and gas giants in the North Sea are not making money because they innovated really well. It's not like your iPhone, you know, it's just, you know, you had this, this commodity and you got lucky and it became a lot more valuable overnight. It makes entire sense to tax that. And maybe also you tax that and you invest in things like home insulation and renewables in a better grid so we don't end up in this situation in the future. And that's something else we haven't seen, by the way. No plan to get our bills down. What happens after this year the energy price freeze ends? And if the gas price doesn't fall, we're in the same position again. No plan to get that sorted. You know, this is very much a hit and hope situation. Um, And if things don't turn up the right way, this budget's going to look, you know, it looks awful right now. It's going to look incredibly awful in a year's time if that is the case. Sam, our executive editor on Berlin Times, Peter Dukes, is fond of talking of a punditocracy, a government run by newspaper columnists. And I have to say that this feels like a budget that could have been dreamt up by the editorial leader writers of The Sun, The Daily Mail and The Telegraph. (laughs) I can't remember in my lifetime seeing a situation where the government of the day, and particularly its economic policy, have been so aligned with the the cheerleaders for the Conservatives in the press. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you've seen a whole host of people come out to say, and these are Conservatives, saying, thank God we finally got a proper Conservative administration for the first time. In twelve years, and you know, you're just you're just rubbing rubbing your head in disbelief at that. Because if I remember correctly, didn't David Cameron and George Osborne cut the higher rate of tax? Didn't they reduce 
corporation tax, didn't they reduce the size of the state? And so we've been left in this situation, this current economic situation that we're trying to revive ourselves from as a result of the very policies or similar policies to the ones that Liz Truss is trying to implement. So that is a very peculiar line coming out of some elements of the punditocracy. I think it's worth saying as well, plenty of people have been pointing this out recently, but Liz Truss is very, very close to a group of pseudo-intellectuals. I don't think you could call them any more than that in the Tufton Street network and that are basically libertarian think tanks slash pressure groups that advocate on behalf of these exact policies. I saw it tweeted earlier that basically the government is now a, a sandbox, a policy sandbox for the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is one of the most prominent of these think tanks. And these are, you know, these are pretty radical measures that they're, that they're advocating on behalf of that then trickle down, the only thing that does trickle down in the modern in modern British politics to, like you say, the front pages of the Sun and the Telegraph. And then they're read, they're, you know, consumed by ministers and then pumped out as ideological policies by, you know, in the dispatch box. And we have a very strange way of making policy in this country at the minute. And yeah, it looks like it's going to continue for a while, a while longer, a couple of years at least. Sam Bright, thank you. Sam Bright from the Byline Times, author of Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. Thanks also to Jeevan Sander, the head of economics at the New Economics Foundation, and Joe Mitchell from the University of the West of England. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our brilliant monthly newspaper. Head over to bylinetimes.com and grab yourself a subscription now. Go on. You know you ought to. Really good to speak to everybody. Thanks very much indeed. I'll see you again soon. But for now, cheers. Bye-bye.